Chapter Thirty Four of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks. Com. Chapter Thirty Four. Two or three days passed. The busy yet peaceful life of home and fields was going on. The hay had been carried. The rick was made, and the rick sheet covered a handsome pile. Dale worked hard, quite in his old untiring way, and seemed just his natural self, but truly he was mentally detached from the surrounding scene. For the second time in his life, and to a greater extent than the first time, he was subjugated and controlled by one dominant idea. Throughout each day all things around him were dreamlike and unsubstantial, and he performed many actions as automatically as if he had been a somnambulist. He walked and talked or rode on the shaft of a wagon without in the least troubling to think what he was doing, and every time his thought became active it seemed to spring into vigor again merely to obey the prompting of the inner voice that now governed him. Thus while sitting on the wagon shaft he thought, if I pitched myself off and let the wheels go over me, that would be likely, just the accident that fools are always making, but it wouldn't fulfill the other conditions that have been laid on me also it might fail i might only mess myself up and not quite kill myself half an hour afterward as he walked beside the empty wagon back to his hayfields he was still hammering away at the dominant idea a gun and a hedge no accident can be more common than that say you want to shoot some rats that have been showing their ugly whiskers in the field ditches take your gun well charged and blow your brains out among the brambles of an untrimmed hedge or those motor-cars. He thought of the way they came racing down the high road from old Manningley. How would it be to wait for one of these buzzing, crashing, stinking road-monsters over there on the edge of the heath, and jump out just in front of it? If one stooped down and took the full shock on one's forehead, it would mean a mess that there would be no patching together again. But one could not attempt that in daylight, because the driver would jam the brakes on, swerve round one, do anything desperate rather than run into one. And if he could not avoid one, he would tell everybody at the inquest that it was a plain suicide and nothing else. There would be passengers in the car, too, who would also swear to its being a suicide. And at night these traveling cars have such powerful headlamps that the roadway is lighted up for a hundred yards in front of them. Even at night they would recognize it as suicide. Towards dusk every evening, external things became more real and his hold on life tightening he suffered more acutely in each hour that passed night after night he went back to hadley wood it was the wood of despair the focal point of all his pain and he was drawn to it irresistibly through the gathering darkness on the second evening he found it difficult to get away mavis stopped him asked him some domestic question and then began to talk about a new suit of clothes for their boy. He was alive again now, emerged from his somnambulistic state, and he gave full attention to this matter of Billy's new serge suit. Nevertheless, all at once she apologized for troubling him, and inquired if he had anything on his mind. No, Maeve, of course not. Are you sure, Will? Do tell me if you've something worrying you. What should I have to worry me? and he put his arm around her ample waist and gave her an affectionate squeeze. "'The hay's all right, isn't it?' "'Yes, everything is all right. You can't do better than you've suggested about Billy.' 
take him with you to Manningley, and look here, if Mr. Jones can't fit him properly out of stock, let him make the suit to measure. Don't consider the extra expense. We can afford it. Thank you, Will. Mavis was delighted. You told me to do the very thing I wanted to do, but of course I'd never have done it without your authority. I've been longing to see the little chap in clothes regularly cut out and finished for him, and nobody else. Going through the yard, Dale was stopped by his men. The foreman wanted directions for tomorrow's work. The carter asked for three new tires. The stableman regretted to be compelled to report that one of the horses had broken his manger rack. As he finally came out of the road, Dale was thinking, Soon now I shall be gone, but everything here will be just the same. They will all of them find that they can do very well without me. The men, the children, Mavis, yes, even Nora. Mavis will be the one who will grieve for me. Nora will suffer most, but it will be only for a little while. She'll take another sweetheart, a real sweetheart this time, and she'll marry and give birth to babies and it will be to her as if I had died a hundred years ago, as if I had never lived at all, as if I'd been somebody she'd read of in a storybook, or somebody she dreamed about in one of those silly, nasty sort of dreams which young girls can't help having but are ashamed to remember and always try to forget. Mavis, however, would wish to remember him and be sorry when she found his image fading. She would struggle to keep it bright and fresh. She would grieve long and sincerely, and then she would be quite happy. She wouldn't marry again. She wouldn't do anything foolish. No, he thought, she'll just devote herself to the barns, working them for late and early, and managing the business as well as I have managed it myself. She'll be cheated a bit here and there, as a woman always is, but all said and done, she'll do very well without me. Customers will support her. The word will go round. Don't let's turn our backs on the widow of that poor fellow, Dale and he thought with the bitterness of heart that almost made him sick that perhaps after his death many people might speak well of him, that certainly in the little world of Vine Pitt's farm and the cross-road cottages there would be a natural inclination to exaggerate his few good qualities and be gentle to his innumerable faults, so that a sort of legend of virtue would weave itself about his memory, making him a humble, insignificant, but local saint to be placed at a respectful distance and yet not too far from the shrine of that great and illustrious saint, the late Mr. Barradine. Of course, people might say, one was a grand gentleman, and the other only a common fellow who had raised himself a bit by hard work, but both of them were good kind men, and both no doubt have met with the reward of their goodness up there in heaven. As soon as he got into the wood he hurried away as rapidly as he could toward Kibworth Rocks, and then when he got near them he walked slowly up and down the ride, with his head bowed and his hands clasped behind his back. And each evening the same thing happened. Visions of Nora assailed him. He passed again through the tortures of yearning desire that he had felt when he first read her letter. And he said to himself, If proof was wanted, here's the proof. This would show me, if I didn't know already, that I must do it. In imagination he saw her sitting alone on the bulk of timber by the sea. Her hands lay loose in her lap, her neck was bent, her whole attitude indicated dejection, loneliness, sadness. She was thinking about him. She was thinking, how cruel of him not to answer my sad little letter. He can't be so busy but what he could have found time to send me a few lines with his own hand. 
just a half-sheet of paper would have been enough, with one or two ink-crosses at the end, to show me he prized the kisses that I put in my letter to him. It was brutal, yes, and cowardly, to make Mrs. Dale write instead. If Mrs. Dale hadn't written telling me he'd received my letter, I couldn't have found it in my heart to believe that he'd treat me so abominably cruel and groaning he spoke to this mental picture that he had evoked for his renewed torment nora my sweet one i can't help myself commands have been laid upon me i'm no longer free to do what i please nora don't look away from me turn to your boy let him see your dear eyes though the sight of them makes me bleed and the thought picture obeyed him he saw the entrancing oval of the face instead of its delicate profile looked into the profound beauty of her eyes felt that her warm red lips were close in front of him and that he would go raving mad if they did not come closer still and let him kiss them after such spasms of burning pain he was temporarily exhausted he felt completely emptied of emotional power as if his nerves had delivered so fierce a discharge that they must cease from working until time and repose had allowed them to replenish themselves then so long as this state lasted his love for the girl was deprived of all material for passion it was as though the highest thinking part of him had been cut off from the sensational mass and only the top of his head served to keep alive his memory of the girl then he thought of her with a fantastic longing that seemed to him beautiful immaterial and innocent he said to himself i don't shirk my punishment i'm going to take it but fair's fair there's no occasion to make myself out worse than i really am nor has taken hold of me a great deal more by my intellect than by the low animal kind of feelings that are the mark of the abject sinner i can't live without her but if i might live with her i feel i could be content to let it all remain quite innocent between us yes i feel i could be happy with her just as a companion provided she and i were alone together far away from everybody else yes i'd take my happiness on those terms that she was never to be anything else to me but just that but soon those treacherous nerves restored themselves the upper and lower parts of him were all one again and the diffuse yet darting pain returned anger came too it seemed that the dead man mocked him went on softly laughing at him what a humbug you are he gave the dead man words what a colossal humbug you and your nice sunday go to meeting thoughts it's so easy isn't it to dress up one's rottenness in pretty sentimental twaddle but you don't deceive anybody you don't even deceive yourself not for three minutes at a stretch you know that underneath all your humbugging pretenses the black sin is unchanged you are no better and no worse than i was you are exactly the same as me and dale breaking his own rule or forgetting in his anger that he had refused to discuss things with this imaginary voice answered wrathfully this girl cares for me that's the difference between us she offers me love and that's something you never had how do you know said the dead man your mavis was one of many and besides don't be so sure that mavis wasn't fond of me she never ran away from me she came when i whistled for her dale brandished his arms wildly turned round and stared at the pine trees and the bracken it seemed to him that some imperishable essence of the man was really here mingling with the shadows floating in the dusky air 
and that possibly over there among the rocks, if one went to look for it, one might see a simulacrum of the man's bodily shape, perhaps only a gray shadow outlined form, the odious stranger of dreams, but more vague than in the dreams, stretched on his back, holding up his blood-stained boots, and grinning all over his battered face. "'Yes, perhaps so,' said the voice. "'But I notice that you don't come in to look for me. You keep to the ride still. Now you've got so very close to me, why do you turn shy of the last little bit? Is it that you wish me to save you trouble by showing myself?' And Dale made gestures of semi-insane fury and spoke in a loud, hoarse voice. "'Yes, show yourself if you want to. You have my leave. Come out and stand here before me. I'm not afraid of you, now or hereafter.' "'Hereafter, hereafter, hereafter.' As Dale moved away, the dead man seemed to mock him, to laugh at him derisively. "'Hereafter, yes, that's a big word. Yes, go and talk that out with God.' He went up one of the narrow tracks that led toward the dead man's orphanage, intending to look at it and perhaps hear again the evening hymn. But before he got to those broken fences he turned and began to wander aimlessly through the trees. All his mind was now full of the awful thought of God, and of the eternal punishment to which he believed God had condemned him. Christ had tried to save him. But the other two persons of the holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity had interposed, had prevented Christ from holding any further communication with him, and together had issued the fearful decree. That was it. Christ had not deserted him. He had lost the right ever to approach Christ again. That accounted for everything. The unutterable desolation, the dark despair, the overwhelming necessity of death without one ray of hope. All that loving and comforting faith in the endless loving mercy of God the Son the redeemer of mankind, the friend and sometime comrade of man, was to prove useless to him. The gentle creed of the Baptist could not be applied to so vile a case as his. He was at handy grips with the dread Jehovah, the mighty judge, the offended king of creation. Three persons and one God. Yes, but such different persons. And thinking of the triple mystery, he imagined that two of its component parts had probably seen through him from the very beginning of his religious fervor. Only the other part, the part that he wished was the whole, had believed in him and gone on believing in him until it was forbidden to do so any more. The awe and reverence that he felt while he thought in this manner made him bow his head and keep his eyes humbly downcast as one not daring to look upward to the heavenly throne. Yet, profound and sincere as was his reverential awe, he unhesitatingly translated all the sublime mystery of the skies into the simple terms that alone possessed plain meaning to man's limited intelligence. Nothing in the naturally courageous bent of his mind prevented him. Everything in his experiences of the Baptists, with their constant habit of homely illustration, encouraged him to do so. He imagined the first and the third persons of the Trinity seated royally but vaguely amid the clouds, all about them a splendor of light like that of sunset or dawn, melodious music faintly perceptible, exquisitely beautiful forms of angels rising on white wings, hovering obediently, fading obediently, but they themselves, the lords of life and of death, the masters of time and space, were two tangible concrete old men two venerable wise old men, 
the ultimate strained extended conception of two powerful honored high-placed old men and they talked as men would talk not in the human vocabulary but conveying to each other somehow human ideas about the man william dale it was at the period of his conversation or repentance or baptism and they were speaking to each other of their beloved son and his newest recruit and god the father seemed to say that he would hope for the best although as they both knew christ was too easily imposed on and god the holy ghost pursed his lips and shook his head and said take it from me this fellow dale will turn out badly seeming to add or explain that it was a mere pretense and no true repentance he has never repented of his crime but of course he is anxious about his future and would try any trick to escape the punishment he has richly deserved all this was terribly real to him and he imagined the dread scene more strongly every moment those two went on debating his case becoming now so solidly presented to his imagination that he could see them the purple color of their robes the halo of light as in a painted window their forms their faces god the father was not unlike old mr bates except that he had a long beard and that there mingled with the candid dignity of his expression a consciousness of sovereign power the holy ghost was clean-shaven very thin with sharp clearly-cut features as of somebody who does not enjoy robust health and with a slight but painful suggestion of a roman catholic priest who habitually goes deep into private secrets and is never really satisfied until he has extracted the fullest possible confession he was the one that dale had never so much cared about the difficult member of the firm the sleeping partner who never really slept who professed to keep himself in the background but who quietly asserted himself in important moments and proved infinitely the hardest of the three and so it had been in this case since time is nothing and then and now are all one dale imagined that while his judges talked of him in heaven his whole earthly career had flashed onward to its end so that he and all that concerned him was disposed of at one continuous sitting then without a pause the holy ghost was already saying you see i was right in my first view of the affair dale is disgracing himself again now you and i must not allow any further communication between our dear son and such an impostor then christ pleaded for him prayed for mercy christ although invisible was certainly there imploring mercy for the man he had trusted and loved and in spite of the fact that he remained unseen his mere presence glorified and magnified the heavenly scene the light grew softer and yet more supremely radiant hosts of angels soared and hovered in vast spaces between the rolling clouds a vibrating echo of the divine pity swept like music far and near but the holy ghost brought forward a large strongly bound volume opened it and said very quietly let me show you what we have against him in the book and at sight of the book dale shivered and grew cold to the core of his spine he knew perfectly well what was entered in the book and he thought it stands to reason they could never get over that i might have known all along that would do for me and there was no getting round it this is his record the voice of the implacable judge continued not what i have attributed to him as secret thought but words taken down as spoken by his own mouth having committed his crime 
he had the calm audacity to lay the blame on us yes here is the entry this is the statement verbatim it is the finger of god and christ seemed to plead in an agony of grief still strong to lighten the punishment of the pitiful worm that he had deigned to call his brother man oh he didn't mean it he said it replied the holy ghost dryly but he didn't think what he was saying he has been sorry for it ever since yet frankly said the holy ghost i cannot see that he has made a single effort to put things straight by removing the blame to the proper quarter that is to himself nevertheless christ still pleaded could not be silenced must go on struggling to save this one man because he was the savior of all men because he was christ he was there certainly infallibly although quite invisible he was there kneeling at the feet of the other two praying weeping he was there filling heaven with inconsolable woe because although his myriad suns shined bright as he lighted them and his universe swung steady and true in his measureless void one microscopic speck of dirt only just big enough to hold immortal life was in danger of eternal death all these imaginations were absolutely real to dale an approximate conception of the truth which he could not doubt and he thought need i wonder if i have not had the slightest glimpse of his face it is my doom christ is cut off from me so far as human time counts the communication was broken that afternoon when i was seeming to see him as he rode into jerusalem and my hankerings after nora seemed to snap the thread i was judged at that moment it was my doom never more here or there to look upon his face End of chapter thirty four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com